Well, if you would take that Bible this morning, look over in John's Gospel. John's Gospel, I'd like to read from the text this morning. We didn't do that as we normally do earlier, so let me read for you John's Gospel, and we're focused here this morning on 114 through 18, the incarnation of the Word, part two. It is a wonderful, wonderful text. You follow along as I read, beginning at John 114. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so we come to this text, as you can see there in your bulletin, we are looking at four transforming truths on the incarnation that bring us to belief in the person of Christ. We looked at one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture last week in verse 14, the Word became flesh. We look at another great statement in verse 18, that no one has seen God, and then it says, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so we begin last week looking at the miracle of the incarnation, that phrase there that the Word became flesh, God became human, the invisible became visible. We might say that the untouchable became touchable. Eternal life would experience, if you will, temporal death. The transcendent one descended, if you will, and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered into time. And the Almighty became weak and the loved became hated. All of that is within that phrase, God, here, where it says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh. One writer put it this way, that He is the King of kings, the radiance of His glory, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, dwelling in light, unapproachable, and yet He condescended to be enclosed in lowly human flesh to be born in a filthy stable without fanfare or pomp. I mean, this is just a crucial statement. That phrase there, that the Word became flesh. And then that book in there in verse 18, that He has made Him known. I think because the doctrine of the Incarnation is such an important biblical truth, It has also been the subject of major debates in church history. You remember last week we just said that the Word became flesh. That is the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, some have stated over the course of church history that he was either not fully God or he was not fully man. 
And so what happened in the course of church history, certain councils developed. And there was a council in AD 325 called the Council of Nicaea. And it was at that council that they affirmed that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man. Now, we don't necessarily need those councils. They're helpful because it's the clear teaching of Scripture. But nevertheless, these councils put statements together that became documents, if you will, of authority from the Scripture. Not on the level of Scripture, but what was the mind of the Holy Father, some people call them. There was another council called the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, and it officially declared uh, that truth in one of the most famous statements in church history. Here's what that council stated. It's a bit wordy, um, but you can follow along. Here was the statement in 451. Following the Holy Fathers... We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in the Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, one of substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, recognized, if you will, in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God the Word the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those were statements that would affirm the biblical teaching that he was fully God and fully man. Now, of course, as there is today, we had some at our doorstep yesterday. I'll tell you that a little bit later. Some found the incarnation so beyond human reason that God became flesh that they refused to accept it. There was a heretical group, and I've already mentioned this group to you a few years back, that was known as the Docetist, and they held, I mentioned this in 1 John, they held that matter was evil and spirit was good. And they argued that Christ could not have had a material body. The reason they argued that is they said, if you will, a body, material, was evil. And they taught instead, did the docetists, that that his body was either a phantom or an apparition or that the divine Christ spirit is what they said descended upon the mere man Jesus at his baptism and then left him before the crucifixion. And so they didn't want to recognize his humanity. Some people today don't want to recognize his deity. In fact, look in your Bible towards the end of the New Testament in 1 John. Let me just take you back there just for one second. 1 John chapter 4. Keep your hand there in John's gospel. But you remember when we articulated that doctrine there in 1 John 4, in verse 1, there the same author, obviously it's the Apostle John, who wrote John's gospel. He also wrote 1 John. He wrote 
uh, again, great parts of Revelation. But here in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It it couldn't be any clearer. A true teacher, according to the Word of God, confesses that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Not that he just came to earth, but that he came to the earth in the flesh, namely that the scriptures teach that he is 100% God and 100% man. We could say it this way, that he is full deity and full humanity. Those are the marks of a teacher that is from God. So GCV, we would just profoundly say, you have to confess that this is Jesus Christ, the God-man who came as God's chosen king and Messiah and took on flesh to be a substitute for sinners. You have to confess that or you're not a believer and you're not a Christian. I mean, the incarnation of Christ, God becoming flesh, is not a secondary doctrine. Every spirit, John said, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And we believe that the Apostle John is refuting the Gnosticism of a man by the name of Serinthius, who was around A.D. 100, and he adhered to that doctrine called Docetism. And this has continued. There's false teachers who don't affirm this. In the second century, there was a man by the name of Marcion, and he said that Christ was a phantom. In the very next century, there was a man by the name of Arius. He denied the eternal deity of Christ. Earlier, the Apostle John in 1 John said that anyone who proclaims this teaching, that he has not come in the flesh, is a liar. Today, Christian science is a movement considers matter to be evil, so they would not confess that God has become flesh. They distort the person of Christ. Mormonism does not confess the incarnation of Christ. And so, beloved, these are important doctrines. If Jesus were not the God-man, at the same time fully God and fully man, he could not be the Savior. He must be fully God and fully man, fully man, we would say, to die for man, and he must be fully God for his death to atone for our sin. So Grace Church of the Valley, failure to acknowledge and embrace that Jesus has come in the flesh is a denial of the Christian faith. And so here we have this teaching as you look back now to John chapter 1 on the incarnation of the Word of God. And we're looking here within this flow at these four transforming truths on the incarnation that bring us to belief in Christ. And we touched on those last week, and we come to a fourth and a final one in just a moment, okay? The first was the miracle of the incarnation. 
And we noted that in verse 14, that the word became flesh. And we talked and walked through what that meant. Then secondly, we looked at the manifestation of the incarnation, not just in 14, that he became flesh, but that wonderful little phrase in 14, that he dwelt among us, that he tabernacled among us. And we took the time to show how that word was used in the Old Testament, where God would visit the nation of Israel in his Shekinah glory, and he would dwell with them. But how much greater in the New Testament that the presence of God was not in a glory cloud or a pillar of fire, that here the glory of God was seen in his one and only Son. In fact, that led to the third principle, the magnificence of the incarnation. And we left off there in verse 14 that the glory that was seen was of the only Son from the Father. And we stress the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He, back in John 1, 1, is the eternal Word, and that everything about Christ is unique. His birth is unique. His teaching is unique. His miracles are unique. His death is unique in the sense of who he was and what he accomplished in the resurrection and ascension. And we're going to walk through John's gospel and you're going to see the unique relationship of Christ to God the Father throughout this wonderful gospel. But let's pick up the text where we left off in verse 15. Look there. It says that John bore witness about him And cried out, this was he of whom I said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so I take you here that his magnificence in this third point was seen in these two ways. First, his divine origin, his divine origin. But before we unpack that, Verse 15 almost seems to, to some that it's out of place. And I don't ever like to say that because it's in the word of God. Some would say that because if you look at the end of verse 14 there, it was glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You would think that it would go immediately to verse 16. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. And so verse 15 seems like it's just, fit in there, and it's somewhat out of place. But I don't think so in any way. Obviously, this is the Word of God. It was placed there for us, and I think placed exactly where it is to make crystal clear that the light to which John bore witness in verse 7 and 8 is none other than the Word that became flesh. Now, look how it's stated there, again in your Bible, in verse verse 15. It says two things of John. He bore witness about him, and we know that. And then secondly, in verse 15, he cried out, this is he of whom it was said. Now, I think it's interesting that as John the Apostle writes uh, towards, you know, we gave that date much later. John the Baptist had obviously been dead here a long time. But I think it's interesting. Look at the text in verse 15. John bore witness about him, and John the apostle puts that in the present tense. 
In other words, he bore witness about Christ. And even though John the Baptist is dead, that witness is still remaining. It's still ongoing, if you will. He bore witness and that witness continues to ring out. In fact, look back in verse 7 of John the Baptist. It says that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. And so John the Baptist bore witness of Christ. And then look again in verse 15. It says that he cried out. And I think it's interesting there that he cried out, and it's put in what we call the perfect tense, meaning the substance of what he proclaimed is still permanently true. So John the Baptist witnessed about Christ, But what he cried out about Christ is now still ringing, if you will, in the ears of the people. And what he rang out is, look over at chapter 1, verse 23, when John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now look what John the Baptist said in verse 15. He said there, that this is he of whom I said that he who comes after me ranks before me. In other words, my successor is my predecessor, if you will. He who comes after me actually ranks before me. Now, why would John the Baptist say that? Look down again at the text. Because he was before me. That's a marvelous statement there. We know that Jesus Christ was younger than John the Baptist. Jesus Christ, according to Luke 1.26, was born six months after John the Baptist. And here again in this first principle, here John the Baptist is showing and declaring the divine origin of Jesus Christ. Even though he was born after me, even though his ministry came after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. And he's going back, if you will, look up, back up to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, his preexistent nature. Here's how we'd like to say that. Christ, in his human manifestation, appeared after John, but as the eternal word preceded him because he existed before him. You remember certainly, do you not, in John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said to the Jews, before Abraham was born, I, what? I am. In other words, before Abraham was born, He's claiming to be God upon which the Jewish people picked up stones to stone him. You have statements like this affirming his divine origin. I'm thinking, you remember certainly in Isaiah 6, we don't have to go there when the glory of God began to fill that temple and the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the foundations of the temple were beginning to shake. Well, here's what it says in John 12, 41, that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, spoke of Christ, 
So there, even in Isaiah 6, was the second person of the Trinity. And so here, that little phrase is affirming his divine origin. Listen, you know this, beloved. Jesus is more than a man. He's more than an example. He is the preexistent eternal word that became flesh. He is God in the flesh. So that's his divine origin. Would you note, secondly, his divine blessing? Look at this in verse 16. It says, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I think he's continuing the thought from verse 14, is he not? If you go back to the end of 14, chapter 1, it's the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, you'll note there in verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received. Certainly, John is speaking of John as the apostle, John himself, but I think that apostolic community. But I also believe when he says we, that he includes believers there as recipients of his grace. And he says of that grace, look in verse 16, we've all received. It's, it's full, if you will. It's his fullness that we've received. It's the person of Christ that we've received. We've been made the children of God. Verse 12, he gave us the right to become children of God. And as he begins to unpack, does John, who Christ is, he was in the beginning with God. He was the light of the world. He is the life of of, of the world as well. And he's the light in verse 9, which enlightens everyone. And then he says here, of his fullness we've received. I'm thinking of the text in Colossians in 1.19. In him, speaking of Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That when you look at the person of Christ, all the fullness of deity is dwelling in the person of Christ. It says in Colossians 2, 9, in him the fullness dwells. In fact, it's in 119 where it says in him, Colossians, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 2 Peter 1, 3 says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him. And so here is what we've received in coming to Christ. And what we've received is the person of Christ. And here it's grace upon grace. In other words, it's blessing after blessing. It's wave after wave of blessing that we've received because of the person of Christ that there is no, if you will, limit to the marvelous, bountiful supply that God has and has disposed, if you will, to bless his children. And so from Jesus Christ, we've received this. And I would just say on a personal note, what a blessing it is to be in Christ. What a blessing it is to know that your sins are forgiven. What a blessing it is to know who he is. What a blessing it is to know that the fullness dwelt in him and that you are in Christ, that you are part of God's family and that as you continue to grow in your Christian life, it's grace upon grace, blessing after blessing. It's a fullness that we have received. Now watch the text in verse 17. It said, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. And here he's, he's drawing out, if you will, the greatness of the person of Christ. That opening phrase is the law was given through Moses. We know that to be true. When you go back and look at that portion of the law, it came through the prophet Moses. It says so in John 5, 45, 9, 29, Exodus 31, Leviticus 26. And we know that the law reflected the holy character of God. And I don't believe here when John the Apostle's writing this, he's discounting the law in any way. I think some people say he's discounting it for the New Testament and the New Covenant. I don't think so, because Paul himself said of the law in Romans 7, 7, he said, is the law sinful? Paul said, certainly not. He said, nevertheless, I would have not known what sin is had it not been for the law. In other words, Paul is saying that the law is not sinful. If the law didn't state that you shall not still, then how would I have known that it was a sin? He said, for I would have not known that coveting really, what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not covet. And so Paul said in Romans seven twelve, the law then is holy, the commandment is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. When you look back at the Old Testament, the law was a gracious gift of God in the Old Testament. There are a number of statements in the scripture that, were, that would declare that. If you're looking even at verse 14, when it says that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, I would say that grace and truth were not absent in the Old Testament. Grace and truth were present in the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Psalm 86, verse 15. In fact, God granted grace. God granted forgiveness to repentant sinners who violated the law based on what Christ would do on the cross. However, the law as we know it, and as we know over and over again as stated, could never save no one, right? I mean, if you were dependent on the law for your salvation, then you're adding up to a works righteousness. In fact, Paul very clearly declared in Romans 4.15 that the law brings about wrath, if you will. He says, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Paul said this in the book of Galatians in 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He said, for it is written that cursed is everyone who does not abide by all these things in the book of the law and do them. And so, beloved, we understand that the law reveals sin. The law exposes sin. But the law saves no one. The law reveals, does it not, the grace of forgiveness. But Paul said in Galatians 3.24, the law was a guardian. He called it a tutor until Christ in order that we may be justified by faith. And he went on to say in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here as you put this together, the grace of Christ supersedes the law of the Old Testament. And in Christ Jesus He is the full package, if you will, of grace and truth in verse 14. 
So grace and truth were present in the law, according to Exodus 34, but their ultimate expression would come in the word, the law, if you will, enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, here's the miracle of the incarnation. He became flesh. Here's the manifestation of the incarnation. He dwelt among us. The magnificence of the incarnation is it's his only son, if you will. And now the fourth and final truth is the marvel of the incarnation. And this could be the greatest scripture of them all. They're all great. But look at verse 18. It says there that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I mean, no one in the ancient world would have disagreed with this statement. Likely they would not have. No one has ever seen God. Barclay in his commentary said, in the ancient world, men were frustrated by what they regarded as the infinite distance and the utter unknowability of God. And then he goes on to quote a man by the name of Zeophanes, who said, quote, guesswork regarding knowing God. He said, guesswork is all over, is overall. Plato said this, never man and God can meet. Celsus, another man, had laughed at the way that the Christians called God Father because God is, a, he said, way beyond anything. There was another man by the name of Apuleius who said that men could catch a glimpse of God as a lightning flash lights up a dark night, one split second of illumination, and then the dark, end of quote. So they taught that no one can see God. If you look at that opening statement in verse 18, look at it again. No one has ever seen God. I mean, the Jews would understand that. The Jewish people would understand Exodus 33, that you cannot see my face for no one may see me and what? Live. And there's no disagreement uh, at all when John declared that no one has ever seen God. I mean, I think we understand, we'll get there in John chapter 4, that God is a spirit. And you have statements, and I think some of these are familiar to you, when Paul began to unpack for the church at Colossae there, and he was actually speaking of the person of Christ, he said, and maybe you can finish the phrase, that he is the image of the in, what? Visible God. And so Paul declares in Colossians 1.15, speaking of the person of God, that he is the invisible God. In fact, Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.17, said that he is the king of ages, you know the song, immortal, what? Invisible. In other words, God is invisible. It's what the scriptures declare. In fact, to actually see God would bring about the horrific results, as I mentioned in Exodus 33, 20. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. In fact, it says this in Deuteronomy 5, 26. 
For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived and lived? And there was not the physical manifestation of God, but it was the voice, if you will, speaking out of that fire, and they were stunned that they were still alive. You remember Manoah, when Samson's father, when they encountered the person of God, they said, he said to his wife in Judges 13, 22, we are doomed to die, for we have seen God. Now, they didn't see God in his form. They saw what we would call a theophany of God where he revealed some of himself to them, and whatever they saw, they thought they were going to die. In fact, it says in John 5, 37, you have never heard his voice or seen his form. 1 Timothy six sixteen, who alone, it's speaking of God, is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. And so here is this phrase in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. 1 John 4.12 says, no one has ever seen God. See, so Pastor, then what did Moses see in Exodus 33? Well, I think we would understand he put him in the cleft of the rock, and we might say that he saw just a bit of the afterglow of God's glory. He didn't see the fullness of God, for if he saw all of God, he would, what, die. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he allows his name, if you will, to pass by, and it declares that he's holy, and it declares that he's gracious, that he's faithful, and so forth. But Moses only got a part of God. He saw the theophany of God, if you will. When it says in Numbers 12.8 that one can see the form of the Lord... It's not talking about the fullness of his essence. If you look over, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 33, excuse me, 32:30, Jacob, it said, called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and my life was spared. Now, he uses that phrase, I saw God face to face, but we know he didn't see God face to face. What John 1.18 is getting at here is that no one has seen God's essential nature of who he is. In other words, he may be seen in what we call a theophany. He may be seen in what we sometimes call an anthropomorphism, where he's revealing himself to mankind. Uh, He did that at certain places. But his inner essence, his inner nature is disclosed only in the person of Christ. You say, well, how does Christ disclose them? Look again at the text in verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, you can see it, semicolon, the only God, which is a statement on the deity of Jesus Christ, the only God who is at his Father's, what? Side. He, in the King James, it says that he's at the, or in, if you will, the Father's bosom. Very well here in the NIV, the ESV, it says he's at his Father's side. 
And what John the Apostle is saying here, it is, a, it is a statement of incredible intimacy here. That Jesus, if you can account for this, in the triune relationship of the Godhead, if you will, he is at the position of the greatest possible intimacy. So here, verse 18, look at it again. No one has seen God, but the only God who is at his father's side, he, it says in verse 18, and the he is emphatic there, has made him known. This is an incredible statement. You can't see God, but the only God, who's in the place of the greatest intimacy within the Godhead, at his Father's side, has made him known. You can underline that phrase, made him known. It is just a wonderful, wonderful word. Because God's word is inspired and because it's inerrant, these words matter. And and that little phrase there, to be made known, is exegeomai, which won't mean anything to you, But here's what the word means. It means to set forth in great detail, made him known. It's the ideal of to expound. We would even say that that word means to interpret or to translate or to tell the whole story. What I think is fascinating is we get our word exegesis from that, to be made known. Exegesis is why men such as myself and others go to seminary. It is the practice of interpreting the scripture. To to exegete a passage is to explain the scripture in its most simple terms. If a man is called by God, he's going to go. And one of those places is the master's seminary, which is where I went. And you're going to learn to become an exegete. You're going to learn to explain the Scripture, to expound the Scripture. So watch this. In this sense, Jesus is the only and unique Son who exegetes or interprets the person of God for us. Here's what John is saying. John is saying that the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh, the one and the only who is at His Father's side, the one and only who has seen God, has exegeted God and explained God for us. It's an incredible, incredible statement. Because of the intimate relationship within the Godhead, that the Trinity shares, Christ being the one and the only Son who has seen God, therefore Jesus has exegeted the Father for us. He has explained the Father to us. So what that means is that Jesus then is the ultimate disclosure of God. In Jesus Christ, the character of God is known which is enough to say that there is no true knowledge of God apart from Christ. God the Father, beloved, is displayed in the Son, and in the revelation of Christ, the invisible God becomes what? Visible. 
He is the image, the imago Dei of the invisible God. And that is the glorious good news, is that the invisible God became visible in the person of Christ. So there I am yesterday at my desk on Saturday reviewing my notes. And the doorbell rings, and it was a Jehovah Witness. He was there as a dad with his young teenage daughter. And the door opens, and he says, we're selling a magazine. And I thought, maybe I should get up. But then before I could get up, my wife just starts preaching to him. Just starts declaring the person of Christ telling him what we believe about God the Father. And so I just sat in my chair. I was upstairs. And I thought, man, she's got this down. She doesn't need me at all. And she, the reason I tell you that is they don't teach this doctrine. They would say that Jesus Christ is a little God. You've heard that argument. With a little G. And they do not teach the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, as God in the flesh. They deny that doctrine. And if you deny that doctrine, you will go straight to hell. Straight to hell. So here's a father with his daughter going door to door. And I said, Patty, what'd you think at the end of the day? She said, Scott, at the end of the day, I asked him what his hope is based on, and he has no hope. He has no hope. And you sit here And you get grace upon grace and blessing after blessing. And you've been made a child of God. These privileges are incredible. But when you look at the person of Christ, the God who cannot be seen has now been explained in the person of Christ. If I could just say it in these simple terms, Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? Well, if you look at Christ you see God the Father. In fact, remember when he said this in John 14? Look there, you're in the same book. Look over in John 14. You remember this account, and I'm saying this so that you might see it with your eyes. I think you're familiar with this truth. After he said that famous statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14.6, no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on... Here's what it says. You do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him in 14.8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now listen, how... The Son explained the invisible God to men as the eternal word become, that became flesh will be the subject of John's gospel for the weeks to come. But here's the takeaway this morning. Jesus, it says in John 1, 1, was in the beginning, and the beginning was the word, and the word was what? With God. He was the light of the world. He was and is the life of men. He came, if you will, and tabernacled among us for 33 years. He is the full expression of grace 
and truth. Jesus, beloved, reveals the person of God to us. Amen? We have a marvelous Savior. And if you've been in Christ, listen, you have the ultimate hope, do you not? The hope of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, grace and truth extended to you. And here it's all bound up in the person of Jesus Christ in whom we know as our Lord and Savior. I pray that you've trusted him. I pray that you've come to a saving knowledge of who he is. And remember, John writes all this so that you would put your hope in him, that you would put your trust in him. And if you've never done that, it would be my prayer, our prayer, that you would do so today. You remember here, John, at the end of the book says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You've got to affirm that he's fully God and he's fully man. And as you believe in him and receive him, according to John chapter 1, then you will have the right, he will give you the right by his authority to make you a child of God. Amen?